0: You know, it's pledge drive season, it's Slate Podcasts, and later this episode, you'll be hearing about why you should support our show by joining Slate Plus. And then after that, a counter-proposal to convince you, if you are a Slate Plus listener, to immediately unsubscribe. No, I'm not going to do that, though I am committed to fairness and balance. If you would rather skip this whole pledge drive thing, just join Slate Plus now. You won't hear any of it. Okay, here's our show.
1: It's Friday, August 3rd, 2018. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Jeffrey Lewis, filling in for Mike Pesca. Today I will interview Jonathan McDowell, a Harvard astrophysicist who has written a paper in Acta Astronautica that defines where the atmosphere ends and where space begins. Which I suppose might seem sort of trivial. I mean, it's up there somewhere. Except here's the interesting thing. There are people who do not want to define space. That's an interesting story that we'll cover with Jonathan, But that interview touches, just a bit, on a bigger issue that popped into my mind, as I saw the Trump administration is proposing another round of tariffs. There are plenty of Republicans who like to point out that the GOP has traditionally supported free trade, but the sudden enthusiasm for tariffs actually fits rather well the outlook of the modern Republican Party. Look, we know that Democrats and Republicans disagree about, well, everything— But is there any connection between what they disagree about when they argue about national security and foreign policy on the one hand, and when they argue about domestic politics on the other? In other words, is there something that unites people, whether it's around big issues like tariffs and a wall, or small issues like not even wanting to define where space begins? I think we can see that connection when we look at, well, the border. With the rise of Trump, the Republican Party has been in love with a wall. But if you think about it, over the past few decades, Republicans have been slowly embracing all kinds of walls. Remember when Republicans wanted to close the border to try to stop Ebola, or Republican enthusiasm about missile defense, or even when a Republican Senate turned its back on Bob Dole and voted against a treaty ensuring the rights of people with disabilities? In every one of these debates, we have had the same argument. On the left, there's an argument that we are part of a broader world and we can't solve the big problems that face us alone. We have to cooperate with other countries if we want to deal with trade, migration, climate change, or the spread of nuclear weapons. These problems are too big for us to handle by ourselves. The other side, though, thinks that cooperation itself is the problem and that America, or at least the slice of it that defines itself as real compared to the rest of us fakers, is getting a raw deal. That's precisely the same argument we've been having at home. And at the root of all of it is the same notion that you can't solve big problems alone, whether you're a person or a country. That's the same insight that outraged conservatives when Barack Obama said, you didn't build that alone. I agree with Barack Obama, but many Americans don't. There are two contending visions of the American dream, just like our contending visions of the American West. One vision is the individualist, the free man who goes it alone, exemplified by the uh, old mayor of where I live, Carmel, California, one Clint Eastwood. The other vision, though, is a collective one, where people depend on one another. That's not the vision of Clint, that's the vision of a barn raising, a community coming together to work together and share the benefits of that cooperation. On the show today, I spiel about North Korea, but first, Jonathan McDowell.
0: Do you like the gist? I have evidence that you do. You're listening right now. Are you still listening? That means you're in deep, but not deep enough because you might not be a member of Slate Plus. Here to tell you all the benefits of Slate Plus Plus is Slate Plus's editorial director, Gabriel Roth. Gabe, how are you?
2: I'm doing good. Thanks for uh, having me on here.
0: Yeah. It Uh, was an obligation, actually. I have to be
2: honest. Thanks for having me on here, which you did because your salary is Uh paid by the Slate organization, and so you have a a vested interest, let's say, in keeping uh, the Slate group going, keeping us putting out these podcasts, keeping us publishing content on our website. That's right. And we
0: do that- How I like to say it is the gist puts food on my table, but Uh, Slate Plus- Puts dishes under the food
2: because if it weren't for Slate Plus, your food would be directly on the yeah, table. Yeah, we
0: wouldn't be able to afford flatware, huge cutlery, mess. huge, and huge mess. Exactly. Yeah, it's if you're doing something
2: like pasta, for instance, That's the plus. A, a catastrophe. Yeah. All right. So the
0: the bowl, of, the trough style, you know, uh, fun, but you yeah. know, I want to I, I, I want to leave elevated. this extended
2: food metaphor for mm-hmm. one second and okay. get back to how how we do business. Obviously, there are ads on this show. If you're listening to this, you're not a Slate Plus member. You're hearing a bunch of ads. We get money from advertisers. That's great. We love the advertising. Advertisers advertisers give us money. We want more money to come. From you, the listener. Right. From the people who like this show, from the people who want to listen to Mike Pesca's thoughts on the world every single day. Right. We want you to pay us directly instead of going through this elaborate middleman system with advertisers, which we will continue to do and we love advertisers. Thank you, advertisers. But we want to get a larger share of our revenue coming directly from you, the Gist fan, you, the Slate podcast fan, you, the Slate reader or listener. If you want to give us money and help us make these shows and in exchange hear a version of the Gist that doesn't contain any ads at all. Mm-hmm. Slate.com slash gist plus.
0: That is, that is the gist's extra offering, no ads. But the other podcasts give bonus content. We dabbled in the bonus content. We'll probably come back to it. But if you're not a gist plus listener, you you won't know when we do.
2: Well, actually, we will let you know on the other version All right, of the fine, gist. Fine, but, but it, then you it, won't get it. Yeah, that's right. You, uh, you're you going to wind up signing up for it soon. Why not sign up for it now during the Slate Plus pledge drive? Slate.com slash gist plus. It's just $35 for your first year, and it lets you feel like, hey... I support the media that I consume, that I care about. I listen to this every day. It must mm-hmm. be worth something to me. I'm going to give them something, help them keep making it.
0: And Gabe, is that calendar year, fiscal year, Mayan year, or a year from commencement?
2: It's a year from commencement. Wow. So if you were to do it on April fifteenth, for instance, it would be fiscal year. But if you were to do it on January first, it would be calendar year. If you were to do it whenever the Mayans began their calendar, yes. you could use you can use whatever but calendar at you like. Then the
0: end of your commitment, you might be sacrificed. From what I understand, that, that, about the that Mayan is calendar. The, that is
2: the risk. Make sure you don't pick that date. <laughs> (laughs) (laughs) If you start now, then it'll be pledge drive year. Uh-huh. If, if you sign up today slate.com just plus you'll be a member for the entire pledge year which goes from now until we do this thing again next year
0: here's the one uh, let me leave you with this one thought i like our repartee i like the conversation we had i think people might like it too but isn't one purpose of the pledge drive to have people hate the pledge drive and therefore want to uh, uh, avoid the pledge drive have we made this pledge drive too enjoyable and snappy
2: I think the listeners will let us know if we mm-hmm. have if you found okay. this pledge drive just too enjoyable and snappy
0: write in and I will address your concerns in a bonus segment of the gist sounds good how do how do they subscribe uh slate, here's doc, the number to call
2: slate.com slash just plus <laughs>
1: I am joined by Jonathan McDowell. He is an astrophysicist at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, and is equally famous for publishing Jonathan's Space Report, a twice-monthly digest describing all space launches. Jonathan, so good to talk to you. It's great to be here, Jeffrey. So, Jonathan, you have written a paper in Acta Astronautica defining the edge of space. Why did we need to do that? Well, I needed
3: to do it because I make lists of things that are in space, and I need to know what's in the list and what isn't. But really, you know, it's been 60 years since Sputnik. Uh, We've been launching things into space. There's an extensive body of space law that uh, describes uh, what you can and can't do in space. It would kind of help to know whether you're in space or not.
1: So... We have, as a human race, been spacefaring for for many, many decades now. Why is it that we have been unable to agree where the atmosphere ends and space begins?
3: There's a number of reasons, and there are technical reasons. The atmosphere is a little variable. There is no sharp boundary. There's no obvious border no like edge of the continental shelf kind of thing where where everyone can can actually agree but having said that the atmosphere does fall off pretty rapidly at certain heights and if you look at where things fly in the air uh, how high they get and where things fly in space and how low they get uh, it's pretty clear that uh, the uh, the boundary somewhere in the 50 to 90 kilometer range And there have been many, many attempts to make that more precise and to argue for one value or another. There are also, however, been many attempts to stop any such agreement uh, by people who feel like, "Eh, I don't want there to be a predefined edge because that might constrain our future options somehow.
1: Why would someone not want to define where space starts and the atmosphere ends.
3: The folks who take that position who are called functionalists in the trade say that the right thing to do is to look at what kind of artifact you have whether it's a spaceship or an airplane and and if you want to regulate it regulate it based on that rather than on where it is. I don't quite understand that argument frankly and I think that at least part of it from what, you know, people have told me is that if you make a boundary to space, it will immediately become obvious that intercontinental missiles and other ballistic missiles are space objects. And that opens the road potentially to having space law apply to them, uh, including the bits about peaceful uses of outer space. And so that makes uh, certain armed forces nervous.
1: Well, I want to talk about some of those arguments because I think, you know, as, as somebody who participated in a lot of debates about what kind of rules we should have for the use of space and what kind of approaches we should take to governance, you know, I was pretty quickly bombarded um, with what you call the, the functionalist view, the notion that it's impossible um, to reach an an appropriate definition and therefore everything should be on a case-by-case basis. But you you have, a, I think, very... Convincing argument that there is an empirically recognizable boundary, and I, I, I was hoping you would explain how it is that you settle on 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 your number. Right,
3: and my number is eighty kilometers above the surface of the Earth. You know, one of the more popular values is is one hundred kilometers, which is a nice round number, and often people uh, talk about this as being the Kármán line after Theodore von Kármán, the great uh, aerodynamicist who started talking about this boundary of space back in the 50s. But when I looked into that, I thought, well, this is a very round number. You know, is is there actually a reason for for him picking that number? And I dug deeper and found, well, actually, originally, that isn't the number he picked. He talked about various numbers more like 8085. And the idea that it's 100 is much more recent. The key idea is you should take the point where aerodynamic forces become more or less important than orbital dynamics forces, the forces of gravity for something in orbit. When you balance those two forces, because the density of the atmosphere falls off so quickly as you get into space, that really it's not very sensitive to a lot of your assumptions. And it turns out that if you are at 90 kilometers, you can still be in orbit. If you are at 70 kilometers, you really can't. And we don't have any uh, uh, examples of satellites which stay in orbit while dipping down to 70 kilometers, say.
1: Now, part of what's so interesting about your background is your interest in the history of space and, and the policy decisions that have taken place over that time. Can you talk about how having a definition can shape and clarify and alter the approaches that governments will make toward governing the peaceful use of outer space. Well,
3: I I think it it firms up the the all of the space treaties right refer to things like space object and if you launch a space object without really making it clear how you decide whether something is a space object or not. And we're entering an era right now where the level of activity in this sort of border zone, uh, what some people call mesospace between the upper atmosphere and and space proper, is there's a lot more activity there now. And so I think it's going to become much more of an issue. How do you regulate space planes like, for example, Blue Origin's uh, uh, tourist flights, Virgin Galactic's tourist flights? SpaceX is talking about these point-to-point flights with its BFR rocket going from perhaps New York to Tokyo suborbitally. These vehicles can spend quite a lot of time sort of very near this edge, whereas most satellites are well beyond the edge. So I think it becomes a much more topical issue now uh, uh, in terms of regulation.
1: Yeah, it really does not seem like the structures we have in place really anticipated the kind of crowded environment we have today. I also wanted to ask, because I I think maybe this gets a little bit lost when we talk about space as a physical environment, an important part of the definition is the idea that that definition is linked to the altitude at which orbit is a feasible thing. And orbital space is very strange as a domain. You know, it's not really like the air, and it's it's not really like the sea, and has very peculiar qualities that I often struggle to explain. And I I often think to myself, boy, if only I had a Harvard astrophysicist on the line who could talk about how peculiar uh, orbit is as a place and and how that shapes the kinds of rules that we should have.
3: Right, and I think the most important thing to understand about space is how intrinsically global it is, because if you're in orbit, you're traveling at seven kilometers a second, you're going around the world in 90 minutes. And so to try and regulate it on, you know, which national boundaries you're above, for example, is just not going to work because every few minutes you're over a different country. And so you really have to regulate this thing on a global basis.
1: Yeah. You know, when I, when I first had Orbit, explained to me, you know, someone suggested sort of the way to think about it was imagine having a baseball. And, and if one throws the baseball, you throw it so far that it falls over the horizon, and then it just continues to fall. So, so there is this constant motion that's occurring, which is very much unlike other, other environments.
3: That's right. You, so, what's different, again, about space is that Uh, I think a lot of lay people don't realize you switch the rocket engine off once you're in orbit, and you're just falling, and you fall all the way around the world, right? So as Douglas Adams famously said, the secret to flying is to throw yourself at the ground and miss, and that's exactly what you do. You fall towards the Earth in a satellite, but you're also going so far sideways that the Earth is curved away from you by the time you get there. Uh, and so it's this magic speed that you have to get to that your sideways speed is so big that you don't fall to the earth because you've, you've missed it by the time you've fallen that far. And then you just keep falling all the way around for years or even centuries in some orbits. Uh, and so what that means, for example, is that when a satellite dies, when it stops working, becomes space junk. It doesn't automatically fall down. It just keeps on falling in the same orbit that it was in. And so there's a real problem there of littering. And when we first started, again, when when a lot of this regulation of space began in the 1950s and 1960s, there were only a handful of satellites in orbit. Now we have about 2,000 working satellites, and we're tracking about 18,000 pieces of space junk. And so suddenly, just like with the oceans, what seemed to be big and, oh, we can throw our junk there, no problem, uh,
1: starts to fill up. Yeah, the last challenge in space I wanted to ask you about is this idea of littering and, and the possibility of collisions, because we are, I think, approaching a point where there are there's so much... Are we at some risk of of a chain reaction involving satellites and space junk that leaves whole swaths of orbital space unusable? We
3: absolutely are. And if you let this run away, in fact even with no more satellite launches, if you stop space launches today on a time scale of a century or so, enough satellites would hit each other that instead of uh, a sphere of satellites surrounding the Earth, you'd end up with Saturn's rings around the equator of shrapnel, little pieces of aluminum and titanium uh, whizzing around that used to be expensive satellites. And so the danger of a chain reaction is very real. The thing about that is there's a lot of sources of space junk. Most of the sources of space junk are what we call linear in the sense that if you have ten times as many satellites, you have ten times as much junk going along with it. The problem with collisions is that it's what scientists call an N squared problem. If you have ten times as many satellites, you have a hundred times as many collisions. And so as we use more and more space, the risk of collisions, the rate of collisions goes up. We had one big bad one already in 2009 uh, that created thousands of pieces of, of space junk and destroyed a working communications satellite. But there are going to be more if we don't clean up our act. So I believe we're going to have to do something more serious. And, and there are, there's uh, just to say it, there's a lot of work going into what's called active debris removal now. Active debris removal is let's let's have space garbage trucks that go and, and clear up the mess and remove some of the junk. And I think that's practical. It's certainly technically possible. What's not so clear is how you fund it. And so I think we're going to have to have some kind of tax on space operators to fund this, this fleet of space garbage trucks to go and, and, and get rid of the junk because we want to, you know, we depend on space for so many things we do. Jonathan,
1: it was really great to talk to you. Pleasure as always, Jeffrey. And now, the spiel. A Zen koan is a paradoxical statement or question. What is the sound of one hand clapping? Here's one for you, dear listener. Can North Korea's leader Kim Jong-un violate an agreement to which he never agreed? I I grant you, it's not the greatest Cohen I've ever heard. But Secretary of State Mike Pompeo has recently been complaining that North Korea isn't living up to its end of the bargain reached in Singapore with President Donald Trump. It's just that I don't think there was any bargain. To be fair, plenty of people have said Kim Jong-un has offered to abandon his nuclear weapons. It's just that Kim himself has never said that. Here's what he said on New Year's Day. The nuclear weapons research sector and rocket industry should mass-produce nuclear warheads and ballistic missiles, the power and reliability of which have already been proved to the full to give a spur to the efforts for deploying them for action. And here's what the North Koreans said when the United States talked about North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons. The U.S. is trumpeting as if it would offer economic compensation and benefit in case we abandon nukes but we have never had any expectation of U.S. support in carrying out our economic construction and will not at all make such a deal in the future. And here's what they said when Mike Pompeo asked Kim to disarm in a personal meeting. North Korea denounced his, quote, gangster-like mindset, close quote. My favorite moment, though, comes from Singapore, when reporters shouted questions at Kim Jong-un, including, will you give up your nuclear weapons? Kim just turned around and laughed. What Kim has said, And what his father and grandfather have said is that North Korea wants the so-called denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. It's a funny word, denuclearization. It doesn't mean North Korea giving up its nuclear weapons. No, that word dates back to the early 1990s before North Korea had the bomb. What it meant then and what it means now is the U.S. withdrawing its nuclear weapons from South Korea, which the U.S. did, and an end to U.S. nuclear threats against North Korea. In other words, it's an aspiration, Uh, the idea of a world in which someday no one needs nuclear weapons, roughly equivalent to when President Barack Obama gave a speech in Prague in which he said he would seek the security of a world without nuclear weapons. You might also remember that Obama said it would not happen in his lifetime. North Korean leaders also say something similar, that denuclearization was the dying wish of Kim's grandfather, Kim Il-sung, and his father, Kim Jong-il. What little Kim means by that is it's probably going to be his dying wish, too. What's really at issue here is the same issue that has plagued U.S. and North Korea all along. Who goes first? Does North Korea give up the bomb right away like Libya? (laughs) We're not supposed to mention Libya. In that case, we pinky promise to improve relations someday. Or do we have to go first? Do we improve relations? And it's Kim Jong-un who gets to pinky promise that someday he gives up the bomb. Look, folks, it's one or the other. This simple question of who goes first gets dressed up in all kinds of jargon. The Clinton administration in the 1990s decided that it would be fine if North Korea just froze its programs, and we could wait for disarmament to come later. The Bush administration rejected that approach, insisting that North Korea agree to what they called the complete, irreversible, and verifiable dismantlement of North Korea's nuclear capabilities, aka CVID. Ultimately, the Bush administration found that didn't work, and they adopted the old Clinton approach, but they couldn't call it a freeze because they'd criticized it. So guess what they did? They made up a word. They called their approach disablement. Seriously, look in the dictionary. It's not there. Under the Trump administration, hawks like National Security Advisor John Bolton tried to resurrect CVID. They were told to shut it, and a compromise was reached. Much like the Bush administration creating the word disablement... A new phrase began to grace the news media. Mike Pompeo just smushed it all together. The final, fully verified denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, as agreed by Chairman Kim, in Singapore. Fun fact, the phrase FFVD does not appear in the Singapore joint statement. But when he was asked about that omission, Pompeo just said it was there and suggested reporters look again. Honestly, that should not be a surprise. A few weeks ago, when Donald Trump was asked whether he might be wrong about North Korea, Trump said, I think, honestly, I think
3: he's going to do these things. I may be wrong. I mean, I may stand before you in six months and say, hey,
1: I was wrong. I don't know that I'll ever admit that, but I'll find, this, <laughs> I'll find some kind of an excuse. Okay, one or two, one more. Come on. That's where we are now, in the excuse phase. North Korea continues to produce plutonium and uranium for bombs, is still building ICBMs that can strike the United States, and is expanding a new plant to make a brand new generation of missiles. There is, of course, a part of me that wants to let Donald Trump have his little fantasy. 2017 was terrifying. Seeing the president taunt a nuclear-armed dictator who arranged for assassins to smear VX in his brother's face was, well, pretty frightening. I'm certainly annoyed with Democratic politicians rushing to attack Trump from the right. But the problem is, while this might still be better than last year, it is not sustainable. It cannot go on forever. We're already seeing cracks, with new sanctions being announced by the U.S. Treasury Department on a Russian bank. And when all this collapses, Donald Trump will look to blame someone. He'll blame Kim Jong-un as a cheater. Never mind that you can't cheat on something you didn't agree to. And I suspect that the hawks around him, like John Bolton, will blame the entire idea of diplomacy, never mind that Trump's failed negotiations no more discredit diplomacy than the existence of Nickelback discredits popular music. When it all falls apart, Trump will return to the threats of last year, what he called maximum pressure. And when those threats and the sanctions that will come with them fail to change Kim's mind, Bolton will be there, his famous mustache tickling Trump's ear as he makes suggestions to get tougher and tougher. And that's where things could go very wrong. It's a theme I explored in my novel, The 2020 Commission Report, a novel about how the United States and North Korea stumble into a nuclear war that no one wants. I say this not to persuade you to buy my book, although I do want you to do that, but to offer a warning. We need a diplomatic effort to fix relations between the United States and North Korea. But that's not what this is. This is nothing, which suggests another koan. What is the sound of no agreement collapsing? Zen koans are, of course, tools for use in meditation, unanswerable riddles that cannot be solved. They are intended to exhaust the analytic intellect and silence the ego. Seems like something Donald Trump should try. That's it for today's show. Today's episode was produced by Pierre bien and Daniel Schrader. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate's podcasts. For Gist host Mike Pesca, who will be back on Monday, I'm Jeffrey Lewis. (sighs) Then I got to read it. Okay, let me try it. Umperu, Deeperu, Doeperu. And thanks for listening.